Welcome to the podcast of the Vine Church in Fullerton, California. For more information, visit thevineoc.com. Well, hey, hope you're doing well. If you've been following the news at all, I'm sure you've heard that Kanye West recently came to faith, and he, yeah, yeah, it's pretty amazing, and he actually released an album titled Jesus is King, and it sort of spawned a cultural conversation about faith and, and Jesus and this idea of Jesus as king, and it's, it's kind of timely because it just so happens that today in the church calendar is a day called Christ the King Sunday. And so I was joking with someone last week that I think Kanye rushed his album to get it ready in time for Christ the King Sunday. It's probably not true, but it, it's, it's, a, it's a good idea. But anyway, so, so today is Christ the King Sunday. You might not have heard of this, but uh, this is something that, that many denominations in, in the mid-20th century adopted because they noticed around the world a rise of secularism, a rise of dictators, and they correlated that with a decline in recognition of Jesus Christ. Christ as king. And they said, you know, we need to remind ourselves, we should take a day each year to remind ourselves, to remind the church, and to remind the world that Jesus is king. And so we have this day on the calendar to to remember this and to really celebrate the fact that Jesus is king. And uh, today we have a special treat. Uh, each each month I like to invite a friend uh, to guest preach. I'm a bivocational solo pastor. And so if I preach every Sunday, that would mean I'd probably die. And so that's not a good thing. And so I like to each month have a friend guest preach, but also because I think there's value in hearing from other voices. And so today we have, we have a special treat. I've invited a friend, Josh Harrison, to preach today. And if you don't know Josh, he was a teaching pastor at Rock Harbor Costa Mesa for many years. He's now lead pastor at Canopy, which is a family of house churches uh, in central Orange County. And thankfully for us, they meet on uh, the afternoons. And so that worked out well. So, but I've actually been meaning to have Josh with us for a while. And, and each, uh, pastor, each preacher I know kind of has their sweet spot, kind of has their heart message. And for Josh, I know this is really it for him. And so we're just so blessed to have him here with us today. So I want to invite you to join me in welcoming up Josh Harrison. (laughs) Can we pray for you, brother? Cool. Let's pray together. So Father, we we thank you uh, that you are God who speaks. You're God who reveals. And we pray that through your word, you would speak now. God, may it come alive for us, and, and would you just impact our hearts today, God? May we leave this place changed because of you, God, because of who you are, because you're at work in this place. We thank you for Josh. Would you just anoint him afresh, God, with your spirit? Would you speak through him now in Jesus' name? Amen. Amen. Good morning, everyone. It's great to be with you this morning. Very excited to be here um, on this Sunday. You know, Michael, uh, Michael reached out and asked me if I had uh, the op- or was available to preach. I said, I was. Um, and he said, hey, you can talk about whatever you want to. Uh, but just so you know, we follow liturgical calendar, which I love. And this is a Sunday called Christ the King Sunday. I don't know if you have any interest in preaching on that topic, but if you can incorporate it, that would be great. And it just so happens that this is the thing that I care most about in the world. So um, there are no coincidences. I'm excited to be with you today and talk about the Lordship of Jesus and what that means for our lives. Um, most messages that I've given in my life and that I was taught to give have a certain format. That's you sort of go to the Bible, you read the Bible, you unpack the Bible. So you, you know, we call it exegesis. You sort of go through the cultural context, you go through the historical context, you talk about Greek words or Hebrew words, you plot all this meaning. And after about 
25 or so minutes of that, you take five minutes to apply it at the end. That's sort of what I was taught in grad school. Um, and I, I like that format. There's nothing wrong with it, but we're not going to follow that format today. Um, today, we're going to talk about the passage that was read just a moment ago. By the way, if I could get you to come and read at my church, that would be really, really fantastic. It, man, it works out well. Like you said, we're, we're an afternoon church, so you can just make the trek, trek to us. That'd be fantastic. Um, we're going to talk about the Colossians passage, and I don't want to spend a ton of time unpacking it, not because I don't love it. I mean, I could talk about this passage forever, but because it's, well, let's just be honest, it's pretty straightforward. It's pretty straightforward. I mean, we could talk about the Greek behind the words. We could talk about cultural context of Colossians. But at the end of the day, in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20, Paul is making a very clear point, which is this, Jesus is king. Yes, Paul said it before Kanye did. I appreciate that Kanye is putting this language in. I don't know. I don't know if it's genuine. I don't know what's going on. I want to believe that it is, but I appreciate that he's sparking the conversation that has been a part of the history of the church for thousands of years. Man, this confession of faith, Jesus is Lord, that's as ancient as it gets in our tradition. That's core. You want to talk about bedrock principles of faith. This is it. Jesus is Lord. He's king of creation. Paul says, I'll read it again. Paul says it like this. The son, uh, I'm reading NIV version, so if it's a little different, forgive me. The son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. This is powerful statement that Paul is making. He's not talking just about the king of the Jews as we talked about in this Luke passage. He's talking about the king of creation, this cosmic Lord. And, and Paul makes this threefold statement. There's really a threefold argument for the kingship of Jesus. We're going to walk through it really quick. He says this. He says, Jesus is king because Jesus is God. Now, this is a big deal. He says he's the image of the invisible God. He goes on to say that God is pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in Jesus. What does this mean? This means everything you've ever read about God is true of Jesus. So you look at, you pick any story of God in the Old Testament. I, I, I have a pet peeve, and one of my pet peeves is when people divide the Old Testament God from the New Testament God. I understand that there are different cultures and different times, and so sometimes it feels different reading the Old Testament. But that God who did all of that stuff, who was present in those ways, is fully present in the person of Jesus. Everything that is said about God in the Old Testament is true of Jesus in the New. He is the image of the invisible God. You want to know what God is like? So many people want to know. That's what everybody wants to know, actually. Everybody's asking all sorts of questions about the meaning of life and purpose, and what they're asking is, who is God? And we have an answer. We have a picture. We have an image. It's Jesus. Everything that is true of God is true of Jesus, including these great psalms. You know, we have these wonderful psalms in the Old Testament that talk about uh, the character of God. One of them, Psalm 97, the Lord reigns. Let the earth be glad. Let the distant shores rejoice for you, O Lord, are most high, the sovereign king over all the earth. You're exalted above all gods. 
If that's what the psalmist says in Psalm 97 of God, then that's what we can say of Jesus. And that's Paul's point here. God is pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. And because God dwells in Jesus, Jesus is king because God is king. I know it sounds like a simple understanding, but actually this day, Christ the King Sunday, was initially founded in the 20s by a pope named Pius XI. Pius, I just thought, what a, like, what a gutsy name, you know? <laughs> it's like sticking a fish on the back of your car. There's a reason I don't have a fish sticker on the back of my car. It's because you have to live up to it then. Imagine living up to the name Pius XI. Anyway, he established this, this holiday, this feast day, and part of his rationale was the kingship of Jesus is um, is true, is accurate, because Jesus is one with God. There is this relationship between the two that makes Jesus king. But Paul goes on to say there's more to it than that. If Jesus is God, he is, in fact, the creator of the whole universe. And because he's the creator, he owns it. It's sort of like when I make a sandwich and put my name on it and stick it in the fridge. It's mine. I made it. I own it. It's mine. This doesn't carry much weight in my household. <laughs> But, but it's a valid argument that I've had many times with my kids. But Jesus essentially says, I make all of this, and because I made it, it's mine. All of it comes out of my character, out of my imagination. That's a conversation that's worth having. It's not just that he made it, he's a, it's a, he imagined it. How crazy is that? I mean, we make stuff all the time, and we think that we're super creative. But the reality is we're just taking stuff that already exists, and we're putting it together, which is really cool and really creative. But Jesus took nothing and envisioned all of this in the first place. He's the original. He's the creator. Everything flows out of him. Things that we can see, the Bible says here, and things that we can't see. And I know that Paul is probably talking about, or definitely talking about, um, natural versus supernatural. These sort of physical things versus spiritual things. But I also think about it, because we're in a scientific age, I think about it on a subatomic level, right? Jesus makes these massive heavenly bodies that we see. And then he also makes all of the little subatomic particles that hold them together, that make them what they are. He is the creator, not just of the natural world, Paul goes on to say, but of the super, or of, the, of the, the, the political and social world as well. I love that we took some time to pray about politics. You know that politics is something that God created. Ooh, <laughs> God forbid, right? <laughs> it's something he made. When, I, when he put two people together, he made a political situation. Like that's just the reality. And, and, and Paul here is saying that all authority, all power flows through Jesus and falls under the submission of Jesus. This means that every king, every dictator, every tyrant who has ever lived will one day bow. That they will find themselves subservient to the king above all kings. I love this. He goes on to say that it's not just he makes it all, but he sustains it all. He holds all of it together. I love that. In him, all things hold together. Think about what that actually means. That means that we continue to exist because he sustains us. Again, I'm not much of a science guy, but I do know that this music stand here is made up of all sorts of moving particles that are held together by these little electric charges that are so slight that we can't even feel them. And that means that I should technically be able to put my hand right through it. But I can't. And physicists to this day don't know why. But we do. It's because Jesus holds it together. How crazy is that? The Bible says uh, in the book of Job, were he to cease to think of us, we would all return to dust. Were he to withdraw his attention, 
we would all return to dust. So many people want to say, God, where are you? And I want to say he's holding you together in this moment. You live and move and have your being in him. Were he to cease to think of you, were his eye to wander, were his affection to stray for even a moment, you would dissolve into nothing. You exist because he loves you. Crazy to think about. So Paul says he is the king because he is uh, one with God. He says he's the king because he created all of it and it belongs to him. And then he makes the craziest statement of all and says he's the king because he died for it. He died and rose from the dead. And that's, I mean, you take those first two truths and then you add that third one and, and it just blows your mind, doesn't it? Because that king, cosmic creator, God over all things in whom all, all things hold together, that, that doesn't die. <laughs> and yet he did. He chose to identify himself with the suffering and broken creation. He humbled himself. He became obedient, Paul says in Philippians, to the point of death. And through that death, reconciles to himself all things and builds for himself a church in which his kingship is now to be expressed. So that's Colossians 1. I mean, we could talk about this for a long time. But what I want to do instead, rather than talk about the details, is I want to spend our time together today applying it. Because here's the reality. This is applied far too little in the world today. The fact that Jesus is king is not a conversation that most people are having. Or if we are, it's not a conversation that we then begin to apply and unpack in our lives. The reality is this statement, Jesus is king, has real world implications. Not just implications for the life to come, not just implications for how I get to heaven when I die, but implications for here and now, not just moral implications about how to make myself a good person, but implications for everything. It has implications for our relationships, for our marriages. It has implications for my, for my job and my work. It has implications for my financial life. It has implications for politics. It has implications across the board. If Jesus is king, if he's king in this place, then what does that make us? Subjects. We are his people. We are citizens of his kingdom. And that means we do what he says. I want to be a part of a group of people who are working out in their daily lives the reality of the king and kingdom to whom we claim allegiance and whose name we claim. You got to understand, when Paul wrote this in Colossians, These words, they seem so kind of high and spiritual, but they had very practical implications for his life. He was a Roman citizen. In the Roman Empire, there's a saying that goes something like this, Caesar is Lord. And Paul, with all the guts in the world, writes this letter and says, no, he's not. This, 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 this paragraph that we read so uh, often lightly and simply that we, that we gloss over is an act of sedition. Maybe even treason for Paul to write. I mean, this is the reason that Paul died. This is the reason that, Rome, or that the Christians across the Roman Empire were persecuted. It's not just because the Romans were grumpy. It's not because they just liked to hurt people. It's because they had people who claimed to be citizens of their empire going around and saying, our allegiance is no longer to Caesar, but now to Jesus. And we find allegiance to Caesar subservient to allegiance to Jesus. So we will serve you out of honor to Jesus. 
But where you and Jesus differ, we choose him every time. And that freaked Caesar out. That freaked out the Roman government. We have people within our context who are not Roman patriots any longer, but who are now claiming allegiance to a king other than this one has real world implications. When we say Jesus is Lord, it necessarily reorders everything. I have a friend who says, Jesus will ruin your life. (laughs) And it's true. I mean, it's only half of the truth. The other truth is in ruining it, he will help you to find it. But he reorders everything. He messed up Paul's life. Paul had a plan that didn't involve dying in a Roman prison. He was going places, and then Jesus came in, and all of his affections, all of his priorities were upended. Jesus wants to do the same thing in our lives. He comes into our life and says, here's the deal. You can come with me. You don't have to. He's not going to force you. He's not going to strong arm you. This is not a king who conquers through uh, these sort of acts of violence and, and, and force. This is a king who conquers by serving. He says, let me serve you. Come along with me. But here's the deal. If you do, if you do, you're mine. And what I say goes. I'm inviting you into my kingdom. And in that context, I am Lord. Not your family of origin. So the values you grew up with, they may or may not align to the kingdom values. That's something for you to pray through. But, but here's the deal. Your family of origin no longer defines you. It's no longer your primary identity. Whatever your last name is, it's not who you are any longer. You have a new allegiance. Not national allegiance. I don't know where you were born. If you were born in this country, this is a great country to be from. I love it. I'm so grateful for it. But I am no longer American as my primary identity. I'm Christian. I am a Christian American, not an American Christian. Do you see? Jesus comes first. Everything else falls underneath. And where those two things align, all is right with the world. Where they don't align, my allegiance has to go with him every time. I am not my political party that I was raised in. I am not the color of skin or an orientation of any kind. Jesus is king and we're his primary identity is there. As Michael pointed out, this feast day exists because Pope Pius XI had a, had a crisis on his hands. I mean, this is 1925. This is between World War I, which ended, I believe, in 18, and World War II, which started in 39. So right between the two, he has this crisis where nationalism is rising up across what was known then as Christian Europe. You understand, when we talk about World War II and the Holocaust, this was perpetuated in a country that was established upon the Lutheran Church. This is Christian Europe. This is not some sort of, uh, this Antichrist could never happen, you know, here or whatever sort of place. This was a very Christianized place. Churches on every corner. People didn't cuss and they didn't smoke and they weren't sleeping around. They were doing all the stuff that good Christians were supposed to do, except they were killing each other in the name of country, in the name of race, because they began to place race and nationalism above identity in Christ. That's how this whole thing went sideways. Nazis were Christians, at least in name. Pope, of course, is in Italy, where he was seeing the same thing happen in his own country. 
And he's saying, no, this can't be the way. We're starting to fracture along these racial lines and we're starting to fracture along these political lines and these party lines. And, and at the end of the day, we're just dividing. And as soon as we divide, we other the other side. We start to see them as enemies and opposed. And it makes, it's a, it's a short step from, from seeing other people as opposed to you to violence. It's a very short step. It's not a big jump at all. And so the Pope's looking at this and saying, what's the answer? And he says, the answer is the kingship of Jesus. We find ourselves under his reign. And when we do that, our differences, they don't go away, but they become secondary. I am convinced that the answer to all of the brokenness in the world is submission to King Jesus. If we bow to him, it's not that our conflicts go away. It's that we find an identity that supersedes all of them. And so all of our conflicts find their place as secondary to him. That's what needs to happen today. In this country, as we talk about partisanship, it's rampant. You know, the last church I was at, I, didn't, I wasn't actually able to do this. I wasn't allowed to do this. And it was probably wise that the lead pastor told me no. <sighs> but... uh we're talking about unity in the church. And I said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to get up. And during that section where we turn to your neighbor and say something nice, I'm going to say, instead of saying to your neighbor, hey, how are you? Or introducing yourself, I want you to tell them who you voted for. <laughs> and here was my rationale. It wasn't that I was just trying to stir up stuff, although I was. It was this. If our church can't survive that, then we're not really following Jesus. Because if our unity is only based on the fact that we don't talk about real stuff, then it's not real unity. We're just, we're just ignoring the stuff that, that causes conflict. And we're really not submitting all that to King Jesus. If we can't survive that, have we really applied the lordship of Jesus to our lives? We have to. This is what the world needs. The world needs a church to rise up and say, we are his. And here's what that means. That, Pope Pius XI said, is the answer. Not just to conflict in the church, but to conflict in the world. If the church can do this, we can model for the nations what submission to King Jesus looks like. That's what the nations need as well. I was devastated a couple years ago to hear a pastor talk about politics. He was a a pretty well-known pastor, and he was asked, hey, how does your faith influence your political life? And he said, you know, he started to list off all of his values. Well, here I vote this way because I'm Christian. I vote this way. And I, I respect all that and I appreciate that. And the, the reporter said, no, no, no. What I'm asking is, how does your faith influence the way you vote for a president? Like, what are you looking, are you looking for a president who corresponds with the values of, say, the Sermon on the Mount is what he asked. And the pastor's response was, good Lord, no. And I thought, how interesting. He went on to explain Look, Jesus is good for church. But when it comes to government, we need somebody with a firm hand. And I appreciated his honesty, but it killed me. Because what he was saying is, yeah, Jesus is great in the context of a church environment, but when it comes to ruling a nation, you need somebody who's not going to turn the other cheek, but who's going to come in with a big stick. And I just thought, I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure that we sing songs at Christmas that say he rules the nations. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that Jesus knows how to do this. I'm pretty sure that, that the end result of all of this is that that's exactly what happens. 
is he initiates a reign in which there is no more devastation or brokenness or pain, that he actually knows how to conduct a government. The government, it says in Isaiah, will be upon his shoulders. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. I think Jesus knows how to do this. And Pius XI says, if we can apply this, not just in our churches, but across our nations, as the church models the way forward, and the nations see and step into it, we will see peace. Now, it's not going to be perfect until Jesus comes back. Please don't hear me say, I think we can build the kingdom of God here and now, and that it's going to be perfect. It's not. There's going to be conflict and brokenness until Jesus comes to restore all things. But for so long, I've heard the church use that as an excuse. That it's never going to be right until Jesus comes back, so why bother? Well, we bother because we are citizens of his kingdom. And what I want to see happen here and now is his kingdom spring up in my life, in my family, in my workplace, in my church, on earth as it is in heaven. I want to see it happen increasingly now and perfectly when he comes back. No, we cannot bring the kingdom by our own efforts. But the great mystery is Jesus invites us to play a part in partnering with him. And I believe what's going to happen is one day when Jesus comes back, he's going to come to me and to you and he's going to say, what do you have for me that I can include in my kingdom? I mean, think about it like a cathedral. Jesus is inviting us to build this beautiful cathedral. And no, all I am doing is carving away the block. Like, that's what I'm doing. That's my life's work is this little block. But one day that block is going to go on the wall of his cathedral. We can build with him. We must build with him. The problem is, man, I love that we're talking about this. This is so good. The problem is most churches don't. Most American churches don't. Why? Well, because we have a problem with authority. (laughs) No, we do. I mean, think about it. In America, the term king is a negative term. We don't know good kings. You look around the world, and for the most part, they've been bad. As a matter of fact, our nation exists as a reaction to a bad king. And it was founded upon this motto that we serve no king but God here. But then we don't even serve God as a king because we don't understand the concept of king. In this country, and I love this country. People often, I get challenged on this all the time. I love this country, but in this country, it's the will of the people that's primary, right? And that's, that's what democracies are founded on, and there's much good in that. But you have to understand, <laughs> I was reading the book of Judges a while ago, and Judges 17 says something crazy. It says, in those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did whatever they wanted. That wasn't a positive thing. <laughs> <laughs> that was a very negative thing. That was the writer of Judges explaining why it was so awful. <laughs> Because everybody did whatever they wanted. And now we look at that and we read that and we're like, yes, that's the goal. No, that's not the goal. The reality is I don't know what I want. And in my going after what I want, I'm going to take from somebody else and we're going to damage each other. And that's why we're in the mess that we're in. If we could all submit our wills to King Jesus, we would find peace. He's a good king. He wants good things. He doesn't need to use us to secure his throne. His throne, as Paul has said, is already as secure as it gets. He doesn't need to use people. He is a king who comes to serve. But we have to submit ourselves. And we don't like to do that here. We don't like to do that here. And because of that, American Christians have done this thing with Jesus. It's interesting. We have spent most of our energy talking about him as personal savior. Which is true. 
and really, really beautiful. I am so grateful for the fact that he personally came to me and personally saved me. But if I stop there and don't continue on to understand who exactly it is that's saving me, well, then I miss the whole point. He's not just some guy off the streets that saved me. Some guy off the streets couldn't save me in the way that I needed to be saved. He was able to do that for me and for you because he's the king. And we've camped out on this personal savior, Jesus, which interestingly, that phrase is nowhere in the Bible. But the phrase, Jesus is Lord, is everywhere. It's everywhere. Yes, Jesus is my personal savior. Praise God, he's my personal savior, but he's the king. He's the king, and that's why he could do it. And you can't have one without the other. Man, I want to stop. For the sake of, for the sake of overemphasis, I want to stop asking people the question, have you accepted Jesus Christ as your personal savior? And instead ask them the question, have you bowed to him as Lord? Have you accepted his invitation into his kingdom? Because you see the personal savior language, it gets a little murky, doesn't it? Because sometimes we treat personal savior like personal genie. No, like, like I have this thing, this mission, this purpose in my life. And I'm going about it, and then I find myself in a lot of trouble. So my personal savior comes along and gets me out of a pit so I can go back about my business and my life's mission. And every time I need him, I pull him out and say, Jesus, Carrie Underwood, take the wheel. Right? Whenever I need him to, you take over. But then when I'm good, I, I got this. That's not the way the Bible presents this. The Bible presents this as he has a mission. He has a purpose. And when he comes to you, he invites you to lay down yours, to sacrifice it, to put it on the cross, and to follow his mission, his dreams, his plans for your life. He's Lord, not you. And that personal savior language, sometimes it flips it. And I've seen it in my own life. Or my relationship with Jesus is just about the stuff that I can get out of him so I can do what I need to do. When what he's calling me to is to give myself to him, to his life. I was reading a while back the story of the calming of the storm and was really convicted because the way we often preach the calming of the storm is, you know, you're in your little boat. You're going about your life and the storm comes up and you cry out to Jesus and he calms the storm so you can get where you're going. What's the problem with that? Well, the problem with it is in the story, it was Jesus' boat. And he was going somewhere, not the disciples. He didn't calm the storm because they needed to get where they're going. He calmed the storm because it got in his way. As a matter of fact, he was the one that put them in the storm in the first place. They didn't want to go. He said, no, let's go. Let's go for a nice stroll across the lake in the middle of the night in the storm. And because the storm interfered with his mission to reach somebody on the other side, he calmed it. Had it not... And I speak from personal experience. Had it not interfered with his mission, he would not have touched it. He would have allowed them to struggle through it because his grace is sufficient in the storm. You see, he hasn't come to make our lives easier. He has come to invite us into his mission, into his kingdom to partner with him in the restoration of all things. He's the king. It's him first. Me last. So now, how do we apply this? Real quick. Oh, boy. Here's where I get myself in trouble. You sure you want to you keep going? I'm going to do this real fast. 
church has to model this. If we want the nations to, to begin to see it, the church has to model it. It has to be modeled differently here than out there. I'm going to say that again. This place has to function differently than the rest of the world, than the rest of the nation. And it's really, really important that we do that across the board in every area of life, that we do it, like I said, in our relationships, in our finances, in, in our workplace, whatever it is. It's also so important. And here's how I want to apply this today. We could have this conversation about a myriad of topics, but it's also so important as we head into an election year that we do this differently here that Christians behave differently when it comes to our political lives than everybody else does. That we apply the lordship of Jesus even in the area of politics. Paul did. That's what he was doing here. He was making a political statement. So how do we do that? This is a case study. How do we do that? I'm not going to say who we should be voting for. I agree. I believe that good Christians who apply these principles will disagree on stuff. We'll disagree on policy, we'll disagree on party, we'll disagree on candidates. I'm okay with that. I'm okay with all sorts of disagreements in the church, provided we stand on the same foundation. What I'm not okay with is multiple foundations, and then we throw stones at each other. You see, it's a different thing. So how? How do we model this lordship of Jesus in our life as American citizens heading into election year? A couple of really simple principles, a few. One is we put God before country. Really, really simple. How are we on time, by the way? I'm looking for a clock, and we're okay? All right. If anybody, if you got to stretch, just do what you got to do. This is family, right? God before country. This means we honor and respect our leaders because that's what God commands us to do. And we participate in the process with them as they work toward a common good and a common goal. At the same time, we have to recognize that our nation is not the kingdom of God. Our nation's a beautiful one. And there are lots of beautiful things to appreciate about it. And there's some things in our culture that actually reflect the kingdom of God better than other places. For instance, we are a a democratic culture. And in democratic cultures, we value individuals, human beings. We give dignity to people, to their voices. And and in this kind of a culture, we value, at least we we use words about talking about valuing human rights in ways that you're not going to find in dictatorships and reflected in other kinds of government. And I appreciate that about our government. That said... This place is not the kingdom of God. There is no equivalent in any government on earth to the kingdom of God. It's not a difference of degrees. You know, we can't say that like, hey, North Korea is way down here and uh, kingdom of God is up here and we're somewhere like here. We can't do that. It's a difference of kind. You understand what I'm saying? It's not a difference of degree. It's not that there are all these rankings and that there are some that are really close to the top. It's that there is the kingdom of God here and there are all the kingdoms of this earth here. And at the end of the day, in this place, we are called to be kingdom of God people. And our obedience, our allegiance, has to lie with that place first. Our priority is king and kingdom. And our service to this country, which I believe we should have, flows out of that and is secondary to that. Why do we love and serve the United States of America? Not because it's the United States of America, but because God told us to. He told us to work for the good of the place that we find ourselves. He told us to be a light and to be salt in our context. That's why I love this country. Not just for its own sake, because candidly, as much stuff as there is to love about it, there's all sorts of stuff not to. Let's just be honest. 
It's not because it's this, this bastion of all things that are good and right. It's because God put me here and said, love it. Work for its good. Care. Does that make sense? God before country. Second principle then is Bible before constitution. The aim of the constitution is in its own words to formulate a more perfect union, which is great. That's what a government's document should do. (laughs) A government's document should be the aim of building up that country. I want to suggest that that is not the aim of a Christian. The aim of a Christian is not first and foremost to build the United States of America, but to build the kingdom of God. And now building within the context of the United States of America, as I just said, is subservient to that. But it's not primary. I aim to build the kingdom. And so my founding document is not the Constitution, but the Bible. And oftentimes, again, they're in alignment. But sometimes they're not. And I have to ask the question, what does the Bible say about the stuff that I'm facing today? I've heard so many, I've heard so many well-intentioned Christians argue over the Constitution, and I just want to say, but what does Jesus say? You know, there's no First Amendment in the Bible. No, this is crazy. I watch in election years, and this is a big passion of mine. In election years, I watch Christians decimate one another on television and in social media, and it kills me because Jesus told us no. He told us that's not to be the way among you. You understand, in this nation, and I'm grateful for the freedom of speech, in this nation, that exists. That's why I can stand here and say what I'm saying. But in the kingdom, your king says, don't say that. He says, let your conversations with one another be seasoned with salt. Let them be edifying to one another. And if you are going to say or want to say something that will cut down another human being made in the image of God, another brother or sister in Christ, you, by law of your king, are not allowed to say it. He says, no. There's no First Amendment in the Bible. You see, that's what it means. We start to apply this at a nitty-gritty level. What does it mean to be a king, kingdom citizen? I'm praying about whether to say the second one all day. There's no second amendment in the Bible. Now, I'm not going to take a stance here. That's not my job. I am not a policy guy. I'm a pastor. But I'm just saying we shouldn't argue about gun control on the basis of the Constitution, whether the Constitution allows it or not. That's a different argument. It's secondary to what does Jesus have to say? And we can disagree on that. I'm, I'm okay with that. I'm okay if I get into a heated argument with another Christian who disagrees on the, the subject of gun control because they are reading the Bible carefully. I am great with that. What I'm not okay with is when we start with the Constitution and think that that is equal to this. It's not. Do you see? Bible before Constitution. Third, Jesus before Bible. Okay, this, I'm going to do this one quick. Jesus says the whole Bible is about himself. The Bible claims, uh, the New Testament claims that Jesus is the revelation, the, the fulfillment of the whole scriptures. That means that the definition of biblical isn't just can I find it in the Bible, because we can find all sorts of crazy stuff in the Bible. The definition of biblical is, is it consistent with the character of Jesus? If it's not, it's not biblical. Okay, really, really important. When you go to the Bible, you want to know what the Bible says, you have to talk about Jesus. He is the main character. He is the thesis. He is our guide. He is the light to our feet, the lamp on our path. Holy Spirit before me. This is another big one. Man, there's so many big ones we could talk about forever and ever, but we're not going to. Basically just this. This is what I mean by that. It means I, whatever I am, 
is a mass of voices inside my head all the time. Anybody else? Does that freak you out when I say that? You're like, wait, who do we have on the stage right now? But you know, there's all sorts of stuff. There's, there's like my, my family of origin, my parents' voices in my head. There's the, the street I was raised on. There's all of these different things that go into making up my opinions about anything. There's the things I've watched, the friends that I've hung out with, all of this stuff, the schools I've attended, they all go into forming who I am. But here's the deal. There's only one voice in my head that made the heavens. That's the Holy Spirit. And at the end of the day, I I get a little freaked out sometimes at how tenuous all of my opinions about life are. You know what I mean? Like if I had just been born one house over, I would think differently about stuff. If I had been born one street over, one country over, one state over, in a red state or a blue state, I would think differently about all this. And I come to realize that all of us are just making this stuff up as we go. But he knows. So how about... When it comes to engaging in politics, whether it comes to voting, whether it comes to uh, uh, debating somebody else, how about instead of just whatever voices come into our head, we listen to the voice of God and say, what would you do? What would you say? So many Christians talk about living by the power of the Spirit. I tell you what, I want to vote by the power of the Spirit. I want to walk into a voting poll informed, a voting a, a poll informed for certain, because that's part of just being careful and being thoughtful. But I also want to be hearing from God, not just the people who wrote the brochures or the newspapers or whatever else. Do you think He has something to say? Yes, the most important things to say. Doing before voting. Order of affections. Doing before voting. The church is a doing body not a voting body. Here's the difference. In a democracy, the many vote and the few do. In the church, everybody do. Right? We're distracted by democracy. We have made the highest expression of our care for the world what we do in the ballot box. That's how I engage with issues. I want to suggest that that's not how kingdom citizens should engage at the highest level. We should, because God has put us in democracy and entrusted us with this great country and this great privilege of voting. So we should, and we should vote by the power of the Spirit. But after we vote, we need to live by the power of the Spirit. If you care about something, voting is the absolute smallest thing you can do. That is a five-minute ordeal. (laughs) Then you have lots and lots more minutes to live it out. So man... Whatever these issues are we're voting on, we ought to be living on to. We're a doing church, not a voting church. As a matter of fact, the next point is weakness before strength. As a matter of fact, I think sometimes churches in in democratic places have a lot more problems living this out than churches in places that don't have the same rights. Because we have kind of in our mindset come to this place of thinking that Political power is what makes the church effective. And the reality is, the most effective churches are often churches in places where they have no power. We're seeing the gospel spread like wildfire across Iran right now. Why? Well, because they don't have the opportunity to say, I voted, I have done my Christian duty. No, they have to live it out on a daily basis. The church in China was driven underground, you know, in the late 1800s, there were a million believers. Over the course of the beginning and middle of the 1900s, Mao Zedong, you know, persecuted Christians in mass, I mean, in horrific ways. When he left, and the church was sort of allowed, I mean, still 
still persecuted and still a little bit suppressed. But when the church was allowed to reemerge, do you know how many Christians there are in China today? Some estimates are 100 million. 100 million. 1 million to 100 million in the course of a century under persecution. What does that tell you? That we don't need political power to be effective. Our goal is not to make America a Christian nation. Our goal is to be the light of the world and let Jesus do whatever he wants to do. So many Christians are so anxious about losing political power, and I say, bring it on. Maybe, maybe, just maybe, if we do, we'll get back to the work. We'll stop relying on the government to do everything for us, and we'll just start doing it ourselves. Maybe, just maybe. Weakness before strength. Let's embrace our weakness. Embrace marginalization. Embrace disgrace for the sake of Jesus and see what happens. Two things quick. Last, I know I'm going long. People before policy. Got to remember every decision, every policy decision is not a policy decision. It's a people decision and God loves people a whole lot. Genesis 1 says they are made in the image of God. Every person carries the image of their creator in them. Therefore, they have inherent dignity. They have power and they have purpose and we need to treat them as such. Every policy decision is a people decision and Jesus loves people. So we cannot get hung up. See, because policy, if we just talk about policy and that's all we ever do, we have this uh, ability to put a wall between us and other people. We have this, this ability to other other people. We can't start there. We have to start with these are human beings made in the image of God. How, then, do we vote on policy decisions that treat them as such? Now, that's, that's remarkably complicated. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying this is simple. But I'm saying that's how Jesus would approach it. Finally, Christ before distinctives. In other words, you'll notice I haven't advocated for one side or the other, and I won't ever from a pulpit. That's not my job. My job is not to tell you who to vote for, which decisions to vote for. My job is to say this. You, my dear brothers and sisters, are Christian first and foremost. Everything else is secondary. Let nothing else divide you. Paul says in Colossians 3, there is neither Jew nor Gentile here, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. Christ is all and in all. He is all that matters in this context. He is our Lord, he is our King, and we're his, and if we behave like it, then everybody will know. If we choose one another on the basis of who he is, not on the basis of do we agree or disagree, do we like or dislike, but on the basis of who he is, then people will see that we're his disciples by the way we love each other. Then the nations will notice. Then the peace of Christ will rule in our hearts. That's, man. All right. I talked a lot. I'm done. That's, uh, that's, how's that for smooth transitions? Um, (laughs) Would you pray with me? I just, I, I don't want this just to be my words. If it, anything is my words, Lord Jesus, I pray that they'd be forgotten immediately. If I have, in my humanness, said anything just for the sake of being controversial or whatever, uh, please let this dear community forget it and move on with their lives. But if there's anything here that you want to say to this beautiful church that you love and died for, I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would confirm it in their hearts and work it out in their lives. Holy Spirit, I pray that there would be no shame or condemnation in this place ever, but that your kindness would draw all of us to repentance. You are a kind king. Holy Spirit, move in this place.
continue to move in this place as you already have so evidently. Enthrone Jesus in our hearts as Lord and Savior. Be glorified in us. Your kingdom come, your will be done in Fullerton as in heaven.